0: For epilepsy, there is hope. Hey podcast listeners, Tori Robinson here for Epilepsy Sparks Insights, a podcast about epilepsy, epilepsy research, common comorbidities, and all of the fascinating science behind it. Whether you have epilepsy, are a family member, a neurologist, neuropsychiatrist, therapist, neurophysiologist, scientist or researcher, Epilepsy Sparks Insights is designed to help you learn more about epilepsy from the other side of the table. I'm a person with epilepsy and some missing brain tissue. I hope to help bridge the unnecessary gap between patients, the public and the aforementioned. Because epilepsy research and science are cool. Today we are talking to Emma Palmer, both a clinical geneticist at Sydney Children's Hospital Network and a researcher at the University of New South Wales in Australia. Her interests are around how to improve the diagnosis of genetic epilepsies and improve the model of care for genetic epilepsies more specifically and rare conditions more broadly. Emma is passionate about improving the patient and family journey for all affected by the rare epilepsies. If you're interested in learning more, stay tuned for the chat with Emma, subscribe and press the bell below for notifications of our future interviews. So, genetics research, you are like one of the amazing people who does so much here there and everywhere tell us about what you do
1: please so i'm a clinical geneticist that's my day job as well as being a researcher um Uh and i guess a lot of people don't know what a clinical geneticist is so um I i might just start off there so what we do is we we think about whether genetic testing could be helpful um for an individual or for a family we talk about the pros and cons of genetic testing. We help organize the genetic testing. And I, I work with a genetic counselor. So I, I have a co-counseling. So it's me and a genetic counselor. And I guess nominally I'm thinking about the more medical aspects of whether to go and delve into a genetic test or not. And my genetic counseling colleagues thinking not just about that, but about the whole impact of thinking about genetic testing and that process and how... That might not be the right decision for everyone, but also offering the support around an individual when they're going through genetic testing, because it pulls up some really big issues, Um, you know, thinking about what's the underlying cause for a condition and not only just the impact that that might have on the individual having testing, but on other people in the family, whether it's an inherited condition or, you know, could have could have impacts for for many different people. So that's what I do in my day job. And and then sometimes families come to me or patients come to me after a genetic diagnosis that's been made by someone else. And my job and with my genetic counselling colleague is to kind of put that in context, what that means, Um, help break down some of the really complicated information in genetics. So it makes sense for that person and that point in time, connect them up, with support organizations, really important thing. Um, And also if someone has had genetic testing, but they still don't have an answer. So that's about at least half of the people that have genetic testing, we don't get, still don't get an answer. Then what are the next steps? And often that's thinking about research and explaining that.
0: If somebody doesn't have the results, uh, which is often, I guess, well, simply a lot of people want a diagnosis, do you ever um, it's a question I've had for a while. Do you ever suggest okay, more specific um, a more specific look at a, at a particular um, DNA in, in their genome, or I don't know, maybe get it done again or
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's no one perfect genetic test. right. There's lots of weird, crazy ways that your genetic makeup can be changed. To result in a condition like if we, yeah. so, for my, I did a PhD recently, and my PhD was kind of exactly on that question. So when someone had had a test through the standard kind of clinic, didn't have an answer, but we really thought this was likely to be a genetic cause of an epilepsy, and then we applied different kind of technologies to try and find those those funky funky changes. Funky so for that's, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> <different, isn't> it? <laughs> you can you can have things where, you know, people kind of know there can be a spelling change in DNA. So we're going along, we're reading the DNA and one of those little letters that makes up our DNA is changed. We call that a genetic variant, we used to call it mutation, and that causes a genetic condition. People often know about that, but there's so many different ways your genetic makeup can be changed. Like you can have a little section that swaps around and reads the wrong way. And many tests won't pick that up. So as we get different and newer and better genetic tests, they're picking up more and more things. But back to your question, absolutely. If, if someone's had a genetic test five years ago, the field has moved so dramatically, it's definitely worthwhile having a conversation about whether it'd be a good idea to think about a new genetic test or even going back and looking at the genetic data from that point time point but with a new new fresh pair of eyes because we're discovering new genetic conditions and learning more about genetic conditions every week so what we thought we knew two years ago is completely out of date and isn't that one of
0: the most exciting things about the sciences when you are contradicted and stuff is backed up with empirical evidence and you saying actually i'm wrong but isn't
1: that oh yeah it, brilliant yeah we we Genetics were wrong daily, <laughs> and, and it's almost. In fact, I once worked for a service where we did have a disclaimer at the bottom of our letters. You know, in that this is our knowledge as of X. Yeah, it will change. <laughs> so you know, and, and that's often how I explain it to to patients and families that I see that that genetics is still a science experiment. We're still discovering, and there's actually not really a divide between clinical and research the two things merge in the field of clinical genetics
0: yeah because i meet like heaps of families who may have had um whole genome sequencing you know i don't know a couple of years ago say oh okay that is it it's over we don't have a diagnosis or it's all a bit iffy they say they might have lgs might have yeah a little bit of gravity we are not sure but that is it we just need to get on with it and because they're so exhausted i mean you know much of the time i get it But even I'm um, obviously not a geneticist, but I said, do you know what, how about you try it again? You just don't know. You know, there's so much new data out there.
1: Yeah, and and, and I guess, um, so in Australia last year, we got Medicare funding, which is like our public health service. So there are certain reasons why now our public health service will pay for exome sequencing, which is one of the most kind of detailed genetic tests that's available now. And actually... They recognize that, so they won't only just fund a test once-off, they'll fund two lots of reanalysis. So with a two-year interval, they'll fund for that genetic data to be looked at again in the light of the new information, because it's recognized it's so important. We know that if you think about how likely you are to get a diagnosis, um, it increases by about 20 percent if you relook after about two years. Um, certainly, we found that you know, in our in our little study in my PhD, we started off, and the, the diagnostic rate so how likely we were to get a diagnosis when I started the project, when we were looking at one gene at a time, was less than five percent or five in a hundred people. XM sequencing, we increased it up to fifty percent, so one in two people getting a diagnosis. And then with whole genome sequencing, we pushed it nearly up to three quarters. We're getting a diagnosis. Three quarters. Um, yeah. That is so cool. This is for the very severe early onset epilepsies.
0: Do you anticipate at some point in the future, you'll have some people who have had a diagnosis now, and then you might look at their um, genome in a few years and be like, actually, do you know what? That diagnosis is wrong. For whatever reason it could be you're gonna you you can give them a more precise diagnosis for instance you may have split up that because i read somewhere correct me if i'm wrong that lgs lennox gastel syndrome is kind of a bit of a generalization of a diagnosis and there are more specific sort of little diagnoses you can make within that generalization is that right
1: definitely it's like an umbrella term more for the symptoms than the underlying cause um so definitely And, and, and yes we are wrong. So often on a genetic test result, you'll see it's written as likely pathogenic, which kind of means we're about nine out of ninety percent sure we're there, <laughs> but it's leaving that little thing because we, we do make mistakes. And there's lots of you know papers that have been published describing genetic epilepsy genes, and no one's been able to prove you know that again. So we're changing our minds all the time about what genes are linked to epilepsy and also particularly what particular genetic changes, whether that is truly the diagnosis or not. Um, And and there's big and we have to work all together globally, which is the exciting bit for me. So there's some big global initiatives to share our thoughts. So, for example, with genes, there's um, an initiative that started in the UK called PanelApp. And the idea behind panel app is it's a bit like Wikipedia or something. You can all vote for what genes we think should be ascribed to a condition like epilepsy. And and we vote and we go from it being red. No one, you know, there's a little bit of information, but we're not sure to orange or oh, hang on. This might be it to green. We're kind of confident and you can go up and down. So it's just like a traffic light system. Um and uh, yeah, there are other systems for individual variants as well and and it's so important in genetics that we share that information globally. Um, so that's that's one of the projects we've got going here is to actually talk to each patient and family we see about are they happy for their information to be shared in these databases in what we call a de-identified way, which means we take away you know their name, anything that could bring it back to that person, just so it's part of that greater Science knowledge to help other people and other families.
0: And even potentially help themselves and help their own family. Yep. I mean, obviously, we can never guarantee yep. that, but yeah. Uh, I'm, it, and uh, this is not based upon any research that I've done, but it comes across to me like there tends to be greater involvement from families affected by the rare epilepsies than in general. And I don't know if that's because of. Maybe it's not the right word to, or nice word to use, but kind of desperation, if you like.
1: Oh, um, yeah, I think it's completely right.
0: And I, and I really hope that we can get more people affected by I don't know, not so rare um, diseases to be involved in that way, because I bet you we find out way more people have these rare diseases than we think, and they're not actually going to be that rare. That's you know, soon. Would you agree with that?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, there's been individual genetic conditions that I've been involved with in my research, so. One is CLCN4. Um, You know, we we were involved in writing, I think it was the second or the third paper on CLCN4. And by that time, we thought we had, you know, it it was a small number of families. Um, And we've just, after that paper, we just kept on being emailed. So by more and more doctors or families saying, we've got this change in this gene. Is this, do you think this is the explanation or not? Um, And we've now got up to over 50 families. So, you know, from a handful, in in a couple of years to over 15 and that that's just the the tip of the iceberg there'll be many many more families um it's just that we're still in that discovery process of learning about a new gene and then what it really means and how many people are affected
0: do you know what that really reminds me of tubular sclerosis because how you know the people who are diagnosed tend to be those who are pretty affected significantly Rather than you get people who've got like the odd tiny tumour and they don't know for their whole life and they don't know until their kid has their tuberous sclerosis. Just so everyone knows, it doesn't necessarily mean your kid has it if you have it, but do you know. And um, yeah, and then there's the, another example, and I'll choose myself as an example to date. Um, I've been involved in the 100,000 Genome Project, but um, nothing has shown up in my um, test, but I'm like, oh, I sure ain't normal, mate. Um <laughs> so I wonder, you know, I, I will be getting this done again um, because I wasn't looked at specifically. But then what do you do? Actually, this is a good question. What do you do? And um, say there is a person like myself. I, I mean, I guess you don't tend to work with people like me, but just for example, and we're hoping for um, our test to show some genetic anomaly and nothing ever shows. It's just like, Okay, and you can't come up with a cause. I find a lot of people struggle
1: with that. Yeah. Do you ever come across yeah, that? It, yeah, and and I guess um genetic epilepsies are just one of the conditions I work with. I've become yeah. much more involved more recently in thinking about kind of models of care for rare conditions in general. It's such a common thing, um, you know, and, and and half of the people who think may have a genetic condition don't have a diagnosis. So there are organisations specifically to support people. With a suspected genetic condition without a diagnosis so there's the swan organization syndromes without a name they're called there's one in the uk i think started in the uk there's a great one in here in australia swan australia um and when you look at um, i've actually got a a conversation coming up uh, because we're doing some education for doctors around rare diseases i've got a conversation coming up with um, the Swan australian founder heather and she talks about you know that uncertainty um being such a huge challenge to deal with and and you know and people when you don't have a diagnosis uh, a common thing is is people hear well, it's this really a condition you know people get their their symptoms questioned um so on top of everything else they're living with and uh, you know uh people are accused of this not actually maybe being real um and and no guidelines in terms of a crystal ball or what it may mean if they wanted to have kids themselves so yeah, these are these are real issues, and and I guess the other thing is, um, so we've got some projects recently funded in Australia to try and go as far as we can with getting diagnoses. And one of the things for the epilepsies that we think is really important um, is the possibility that there's a genetic condition, but it's not in every cell in the body; it's right. just in some. Brain cells, so what we'd call somatic mosaicism. So just like a mosaic tile, there's a gene change, and it's in some of the tiles, some of the cells of your body, but not all of them. And in fact, there's some pretty amazing work where they've they've looked at things like um, ultrafine, um, eg, um, where they're actually doing eg needle. And this you can see I'm not a neurologist when I'm trying to explain this, but essentially really really fine needles into the brain, taking out tiny, tiny amounts of brain Whoa. tissue and then doing the genetic testing there and finding a gene change. But wow. it's not, if you looked in the blood, you wouldn't see it. So it's a That's genetic so amazing tissue, it's confined to the brain. Um,
0: Do you know what that reminds me of? I read recently this um, article about this man, um, well, man and a lady, they'd had a baby. And then the bloke was like, no, no offense, darling, they didn't look too much like me. Anyway, ended up having... Um, Having the baby and himself tested, the baby appeared not to be related to him, or the the man, sorry, appeared to be the baby's uncle and they're like, "What's going on and then so they did more tests on this man, and it turned out that he had absorbed his twin in the womb oh, okay yeah. yeah, and I don't know what this is called, but anyway so the the DNA um or the gene from his twin that was never born went to his um sperm. And that sperm contained the DNA of his brother that never was. It was amazing. Just something like those of us who are not
1: in genetics would never think of. The thing about genetics is every possibility you could think up, you know, may happen. So so this is, a th- we have this thing called germline mosaicism, which kind of might be a bit related to this, where, yeah, you do the, you do a genetic test. So say, uh, why, why we started to realize this is we, we do a genetic test on a, a child. We'd find a genetic condition. We'd test the parents in their blood, and neither of them had evidence of that condition. But then the family had another baby with exactly the same genetic condition. So how does that happen? That's devastating, obviously. They thought they've checked everything. And what happens is sometimes the genetic change doesn't happen for the first time when kind of the egg hit the sperm and the, and the, the baby's made. It's one step back so in a pocket of eggs
0: mm-hmm. from,
1: from the mum or a pocket of sperm from the dad. So then that can happen again. So say it was a pocket of eggs, it, there could be a genetic change and it's only like in 5% of the eggs. But then that egg, you know, then you could have a recurrence in a sibling. And, and we now know sometimes that if you look at things like Dravet syndrome, it's been suggested that could happen up to 5% of the time. So often what we do in terms of genetic counseling for families now is we talk about germline mosaicism. And so even if um, we've done all the genetic testing and a family are really worried about the chance of recurrence in another pregnancy because it's a really devastating severe epilepsy, um, they may look at options like, Um, actually doing genetic testing in the pregnancy to see whether the baby has the condition even by that kind of you know two percent one percent chance that it could be germline mosaicism.
0: Worth checking you know I I know a a lady whose son has ring 20 and um, so she's told me a little bit about about this mosaicism and how difficult it can be to detect um Mm. in a regular um test is that right
1: yeah yeah so ring that exactly that's one of those examples where that's usually mosaic so that's another really good example of a condition where actually um like if you did exome sequencing that wouldn't pick up that condition you have to go back and do the old-fashioned test which is called a karyotype like what we used to do 20 years ago because you'd only pick it up by actually looking at the chromosomes down the microscope. You wouldn't pick it up by, yeah, those next generation sequencing techniques. Sometimes the old tests, the good ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We d-
0: should not automatically disregard what, yeah, what we've done in the past. The newest is not always the best, right? Yeah. Tell us about how our co work and how talking with patients with epilepsy and their caregivers has shaped your research in epilepsy genetics. So
1: what that's. Um, that's about is the research that I've been doing since my PhD, Uh um, which was kind of a bit of a, so my PhD was very sciencey, very, you know, discovering new genes, discovering new genetic variations. And then, but I'm a clinician as well. So I sit down with families and try and explain what that means. And often I hear that's great, but so what, like how does that actually change things for my child or for us as a family? And so yeah, there's a big, so what we need to improve the model of care. So getting a diagnosis is great, but it doesn't answer all of the challenges mm. um, of having a severe epilepsy. Mm. And so um, my sort of PhD it was actually going to be the last chapter of my PhD, but I, I'd sort of overdone stuff. So we, that became a PhD for um, a wonderful PhD candidate, Suzanne, that I've been co-supervising um, with a with a psychologist, um, Professor Claire Wakefield, uh, and a neurologist, Professor Annie Bai. And Suzanne's PhD has been started off with looking at the literature about what are the information and support needs of families after a genetic epilepsy diagnosis. So what we knew from what other people have published, and then actually interviewing 25 parents um, and and the sort of messages that came out from that were that there was this big challenge that people were struggling because the epilepsy was so overwhelming and severe but it wasn't the only thing going on for their kids so as we know there was huge impacts often on sleep um, on the child's development, autistic features were often very common um, feeding difficulties, other what we'd call comorbidities, but maybe we should phrase that more as morbidities. So actually, the genetic epilepsies are complex. They affect lots of things to do with that individual. And often the focus was almost too narrow on the epilepsy. Or even if it was broader, and it was looking at the medical issues, it wasn't taking into effect the whole picture. So the mental health of that child and the mental health of the family. And um, that's been backed up by studies. There's there's an amazing group um, in Denmark, and they saw that they did a a survey and I think um, some interviews. That 40% of caregivers of a child with a genetic epilepsy have diagnosable depression, anxiety, chronic post-traumatic stress. So it got to the stage where we were hearing this so often, we just couldn't sit back and say, "Oh, that's interesting," but then not do anything about it, you know, as they say, admire the data, just look at it and say, oh well, that's interesting that lot, you know, there's a huge emotional impact of epilepsies. Um so Suzanne actually co-developed with families, which means you know involving families in um the production of some resources, which was taking a positive psychology approach. And that was a series of videos um with the psychiatrist Prof. Ken Nunn talking through the kind of stages um that can happen after a a severe genetic epilepsy diagnosis. But we've tried to interweave that with the voices, the quotes from families themselves to get that authentic connection um, that we've talked to and listened to people who have genetic epilepsy or caring for a child with a genetic epilepsy.
0: Like I had a chat with a um, geneticist from Ireland uh, a few months ago and I brought up this topic, actually, saying it's fabulous, absolutely fabulous, the research you're doing. But sometimes we don't give a flying rude word about actually the seizures, the epilepsy, because that's not our priority much of the time. It can be the side effects of the drugs. It can be the, you know, the psychiatric comorbidities or mild disease. It could be, you know, the intellectual disability or behavioural issues. And honestly, like with other types of epilepsies, which aren't considered rare, there are so many similarities. And I, you know, even though not until relatively recently, for instance, was my epilepsy considered rare, and then I was like, yeah, it is actually rare. <laughs> but I'd forever been, you know, working with or talking to people with a regular epilepsy, and there were just so many similarities. And we don't always have to divide people into groups. Sometimes it, I think it takes a, um, people or families affected by the rare epilepsy is a little bit of persuasion <laughs> because they're brought, you know, from day one, they're taught that because you have or your family member has this rare condition that makes you 100% different from everybody else. And that's not necessarily true.
1: You know, and actually what we're talking about is good quality care, for stop. Uh-huh. You know, and, yeah. and recently, you know, in Australia, we were on a project, which is about rare disease. Um, and the best models of care for rare disease and that 's informed by you know talking to patients and caregivers, all the stuff we're doing wrong as doctors. but when you look at what people are asking for it 's what makes a good doctor it 's about shared decision making, working in a partnership you know patient centered family centered care, and working as an interdisciplinary team, communications between team considering the psychosocial impacts of conditions in every consultation and that's that's not rocket science that's good clinical care Um, and and so a lot of what we're trying to do here is work with GPs and that is absolutely aligned with what makes a good GP.
0: Thank you I've spoken to GPs one including somebody who has similar genetic makeup to myself and had honestly had no idea about even a regular epilepsy I don't really know what to say I was like wow 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 and i think and i guess you're not asking gps to become experts in a specific um, genetic epilepsy at all just be aware that these are here there and everywhere quite frankly because so many people do have these rare diseases and just look at things through their you know through their eyes as much as you can and that of the carers Uh, and also another thing i reckon uh, is not always recognized by many, many clinicians is is the importance of looking after carers and families because even if a child or, or adult has a severe intellectual disability, we're all human and they can pick up when the people they love aren't feeling great,
1: you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, a person is in the context of their family or their community, their partner. Um, and, and there will be really hard times where those, that support network is even more important. And if that support network is pushed to the brink, which is often the case because, you know, we don't look after carers. Uh, then everything else can fall apart as well. So it really is about shifting the needle in terms of a more authentic partnership model of care um, and, and listening to patients, listening to families. And, you know, with rare disease, um, it's often said, well, you're the expert, you know, you're the expert. Yes, they're the expert, but but they need support and you they need to know that you're listening to them and actually taking on board their research um, and connecting them. And I think that's so often, you know, I I teach medical students, and this is one of the things I'm trying to get across to them, is we need to change from that paternalistic, maternalistic model of care that we are the clinicians and we know everything. That is not true. That is not true. And for rare disease, you cannot be an expert in every 7,000 rare diseases that there are. So it's about approaches and actually being honest. And what we hear from patients, and, you know, this makes sense to me, if people are honest and say, I don't know, I've never heard of this condition, but give me a minute, I will look into it, I'll ring a friend, I'll look into this, yes, I'll read what you've brought me. You know, that is what actually people want, that honest, open relationship that's a life, you know, that that that, that that's also... Um, just not a once-off appointment it's a relationship a journey that you go on together
0: it's uh there's been a real culture change hasn't there over the past sort 10 20 years of where I think I hope that the contribution from carers and um and um people with the epilepsies or whatever the disease might be their input is valued more as it should always have been and but at uh, us thought we need to be able to to recognize and still respect the clinician when they say, actually, I don't know everything. We love that, but we can't expect people to know everything. And it's okay to go, well, not necessarily Google, Google can be dangerous, but to research a, a disease and, and find out more about it. And then stay with us long-term as well. It shouldn't just be, oh, I'll see this GP, this, oh, I'll see this GP another time, da 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 da. da. Um, and again, I think just, Make the family re- um or just reassure the family that they 're not forgotten is it it 's a huge, huge part, and then where well, you know where possible, encourage them to be should they want to be, but involved in research
1: that 's what families are wanting to do, and that 's why we actually started up here in sydney children 's Hospital a specific registry which is about just asking that question are you interested in research would you like to be contacted about research opportunities and I haven't had a family that said no to me so far you know that 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 is that is how it's going and people are people are enthusiastic about those opportunities and even if there's nothing right now we at least know that people are interested and so we can connect them up with opportunities if they come up I think that's that's a, a big change
0: Totally, and you know, that's why we're putting these research, um, these, these studies onto the Epilepsy Sparks research page, so that people can find something that is suitable for them, So, so uh, something yeah. as in some sort of research study, and it's there for people to access, it doesn't have to, you know, remain behind this silly brick wall that used to, ex- you know, exist between clinicians, academics and patients, or mere patients should I say, it's there, get involved, and it gives them purpose, especially when they know their kid is at the moment kind of lost you know there is not effective treatment or whatever that gives you something
1: cool to think about and that is realistic hope hope. and yeah hope's not a bad thing hope's a really good thing we've had a recent genetic epilepsy family day and we asked families what they wanted they wanted to hear from other families but they also really wanted to hear from researchers even if it wasn't something that was relevant to their child right now You know, so we actually got in a neurologist who was talking about gene therapy trials for spinal muscular atrophy in a genetic epilepsy day because that's happening, you know? And and so, you know, and people were saying, we just wanna know what's on the horizon, even if it may never be possible for our child, you know, that's to know that the fields are changing and there are new possibilities coming out is is good.
0: And it's also great to have people like yourself and, and your colleagues uh, researching things other than seizures, um, I know a dad whose um, whose child has has, has cerebral palsy um, and is uh, in addition to the epilepsy and has not been able to walk and since birth and her hips did not develop properly um, as a result of that and she had to have surgery on her hips. Um, and you know there are going to be other surgeries in the future because she's just not being pressure. I don't really understand the stuff behind it but he just told me there's going to be other surgeries yeah. stuff like that that is wonderful for him to find out more about and to again know that he's not the only person going through that or it it's not the only yeah. person with the child going through that and then he can also relate more to his child
1: yeah. because he
0: understands a bit more about what she's going through
1: that's such a common thing from parents especially dads i think really? like like dads kind of we did a project once um talking to dads of kids with fragile x and what they came back with was we just want to be able to understand our kid better so we can help them you know and there was one story that really touched me which was a dad um so his his child just every time he went in his car like in the dad's car he got really upset um like really upset, he'd go in mum's car, he wouldn't go in dad's car. So dad had internalized that and thought that was something to the kid not trusting him. Then he got a new car, different feel of the texture of the car seat and the kid was absolutely fine because he had often these sensory processing issues are so important in Fragile X. Yes. And so he said, if I could have known that, if I could have, someone would have sat me Stop down anything. and said, my kid has got some sensory processing. What this may mean for you is this. If there's something that's difficult, try another, you know, thing or whatever. <laughs> um, then maybe that's a car seat cover or something, you know. Wouldn't that have been great? Because that was the, the dad said, I, I just want to help and I need that toolkit.'" to know how I can help and how I can support my family.
0: Things like that relate so closely to the child's mental health, to to their likelihood of having a seizure, because if they're freaked out and nervous, that you know, all combined, isn't it? Just like so closely. Um, I think that's, we're getting better at at recognizing that, I think, but people still need to know that, you know.
1: And and you know, and there's some of the genetic epilepsies where a child may actually never have a seizure. It's the same gene, you know. So I've got I've got a, a family I see where um it's the STX BP one gene, which is one of the commonest genetic epilepsy genes, and that mm-hmm. child has never had a seizure, they have cerebral palsy, a movement disorder, which is often a feature of that condition, and that's how varied it can be.
0: It is just so amazing. It and <laughs> this is that probably doesn't sound a bit selfish but personally honestly what you're doing helps me mentally and therefore in terms of my epilepsy as well even somebody without all these you know quite frankly some awful awful comorbidities it just helps us a lot and it helps the people that care about me so other people who don't have a diagnosed rare epilepsy recognize that you can relate to us you really yeah. can relate to us Um, And everybody, you know, whether they realize it or not, does know somebody affected by these types of uh, conditions in some way. Um, You also wanted to mention a new project called Gene Equal. Tell us about that
1: like most of my research, it comes out of what I think I do really badly as a clinician. Oh. <laughs> so that's, that's, I, I recognize I'm not doing a good job here. So like, like my PhD came out, I'm not doing a good job getting diagnoses. So let's see if we can improve that. So gene equals come out of, I don't think I'm doing a good job talking to people who themselves have learning difficulties about right. genetics and about genetic testing. So it's a project where um, I've linked up with some amazing researchers at, at the University of New South Wales whose background is um, special education uh, and inclusive research, inclusive and accessible research. So that's conducting research with people with intellectual disability as members of the research team. Cool. Um, which is amazing Uh, We've one of our research team Julie herself is a self advocate she has an intellectual disability and she's an adjunct lecturer at University of New South Wales that's fabulous
0: Fabulous. and
1: um, so she's helped with the whole study design which we're working with the Ministry of Health here in New South Wales which is our part of Australia um, which is conducting inclusive interviews with people with intellectual disability about their thoughts and experiences of genetic testing and counselling so we can do that first step of saying how has that gone for you and what can we do better and then we can work together to try and get some solutions for that.
0: Talking about obviously uh, learning disabilities or intellectual disabilities vary a great deal you can go from whatever to whatever what defines somebody as a suitable person for involvement in your research? This
1: particular study we decided to focus on people who had a diagnosed intellectual disability so at least uh, uh, a mild intellectual disability but all of our consent process was done in with easy read documents um so that so you have to be able to give informed consent to participate in a research program and so what i had to do was completely relearn for this project what how you do informed consent for someone with intellectual disability um, so all of our research documents are in easy read as well as standard English and I can tell you it's the so whenever we do a research project it has to go through our ethics committees this was the easiest project to get through an ethics committee because all the work that you know Julie had done on the easy read documents um, and, and Eva from our team meant it made sense <laughs> you know so it's- <laughs> Usually, you know, you have a consent form and it's really dense type and two, three pages long and no one really reads it. Um, But this was getting down to the the most important bits of information to convey that we want to hear from them about what their experiences were, what they thought about it. So we had little explanations what genetic testing is, genetic counselling is, and that they felt that they would like to participate in the interviews, that they didn't feel, you know, coerced in any way was their choice and they could say no and the feedback so far from the interviews has been amazing that people just so have valued the opportunity of having their voice heard and they have talked and talked and talked and it's just brought up some chronic trauma of people you know uh with intellectual disability who've internalized over many years words, you know disability mutation <laughs> You know, all these negative words and and terminology and that's become part of, they've internalized that and and the mental health impacts are immense and we are not recognizing that in clinic because we're not spending the time and the relationship building that needs to make make, happen for people to open up about that. So, uh, you know, I think it's actually a project that is really important because I think we need to make sure we're including everyone um in our, in their own healthcare so in australia we've just got a a roadmap for improving healthcare for people with intellectual disabilities um and and the sort of the the byword of the um the self advocacy movement is nothing about us without us which i think is true for all research isn't it totally i oh I love this. I have a family member who um, has
0: uh, severe intellectual disability, epilepsy and a squillion other things combined. And she's not able to um, articulate anything. She's nonverbal and non-many things. But I just know for her, for her, her parents, this is wonderful news. This is so lovely. Um, I want people to recognize that you don't have to have exactly the same diagnosis. You don't have to have the same, you know, IQ as somebody. This is all something everybody can relate to. And also the writing that you've done for um this lady, this probably great for lay people in general, right? Oh god, yeah, absolutely.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. You know, when when we look overall as our population at health literacy and then we think, why is research so biased and we're, you know, we're only getting the metropolitan families that are really highly educated? Well we don't make research accessible, so yeah, I'm learning huge amounts with this process. And then another project goes on, I completely changed the consent process, um, so that we, Fab. Uh, you know I use the model of what we'd done for this, and and it, it again it sailed through ethics because it made sense. Have you got um, any First Nations people included in your research?
0: Just random question.
1: Um, so so in Australia, um, we have to ensure that we're doing research exactly you know like I said nothing about us without us so in australia there's been huge issues with genomics research for aboriginal and torres strait islander people that has not been culturally appropriate or culturally mm-hmm. safe and so that is a big finally there's a big um well, I'm sure it is the right word. There is funding that is flowing to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander researchers okay. um, in the field of genomics. Um, uh, there's an amazing, several ma- amazing centres with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander ro- researchers working in genomics. And I am not of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, um, uh, you know, uh, descent by any means. Uh, I was brought up in the UK and only came here relatively recently. So. What, what what I think is really important is that we're enabling researchers from those communities to do high quality research with their own communities because I cannot in any means say that I could speak for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and so what we're trying to do is um, all of our research that we're thinking about making this culturally safe and appropriate for all communities um, and that that's really appropriate and that you know speaks to also the huge numbers of patients that we see where English isn't their first language.
0: Of course, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and Australia being such a sort of wonderfully diverse immigrant, if you like, nation, it's so, so crucial. Um, It's a wonderful mixing pot. It's been so lush talking to you. Thank you so much, Emma. Um, We could go on for flipping forever, and I know there's like heaps of things we've missed and stuff, but it's been lovely chatting with you. Oh, thanks for the opportunity.